Hello, everyone. I'd like to share with you one of the uh, prayer demands from Paramahansa Yogananda from his book, Whispers from Eternity, a very touching one. May my spark commingle with thy great spark. May it twinkle in all eyes. Bless me that I may swim in the sea of souls. Let me rush with thee on the avalanches of noble desire. Let me feel in thee the budding hopes of all roseate minds and in the silence of all saints. Let the tears of my sympathy commingle with the drops in all tearful eyes. Together, thou and I will dance on the wavelets of all feelings. We will cheer every heart with divine delight. Let us throb in the life of all beings. So a very real experience, just reading the words beyond our minds absorbing that. It's almost as if it's tangible, it's palpable in our feeling, in our hearts. And that's really, truly what the spiritual path evolves to more and more for each one of us. You know, there's this kind of dilemma that just being born uh, produces some interesting challenges. that here we are in the world of duality one more time. And on one hand, we, we want to both affirm and experience that we are children of God, we are children of that light, that we are made in that divine image. And that's really the, the deepest and most expansive truth for who we are. But we have this other reality that it's as if we're trailing streams of karma with us as we incarnate. We're not born innocent, let's put it that way. Whether it's many lifetimes, but there is karma. And what is karma? Karma can be a confusing word because it's reached into our modern vocabulary and used in a lot of different ways. (laughs) Uh, including, um, you know, really just odd ways of expressing it. Um, but karma, simply put, is, is where we've invested our energies, our consciousness, into directions that are taking us away from our divine heritage in God. It may be in desires, it may be in attachments, may be expressed in many, many ways. And sometimes we're not even aware that we've put into focus that energy that has to be resolved. So that's the essence of karma, is that it's not really it's bad or good in in the true sense. It is in the way that we feel in this dual world. But karma is simply there for us to release the energy around it. Or another way of, of paying attention to it is that we're needing to lift the energy above the energy that we've invested in those things that have pulled us away from that expanse of consciousness in God. So pretty straightforward and simple, correct? It simply just isn't easy though. (laughs) And that's why we have this reading from the Bhagavad Gita that says, out of a thousand, one may seek me, and out of many truth seekers, one may come to the experience of oneness in me, 
in the divine. Well, if you use mathematics here, um, we're talking maybe one of a thousand seeks me and out of a thousand that seek me find me. Hopefully that's not what the mathematics really mean. But it can be discouraging if we're looking at it from the outside in. But if we're on the inside looking for how this really applies in my life, it really doesn't make a difference about the thousand and, and all of that. It just has to do with what am I doing? Where am I going with my experience? And always moving towards the highest possibility, even in this moment. So some of you may be new to Ananda and you're here perhaps for a first visit. It still applies to each of us. Where do we really place our awareness and consciousness? You know, in the yoga teachings, in the Vedic teachings, there is this understanding and experience of the gunas. The gunas, in a sense, are the uh, outward manifestations of deeper reality. So they're in the world. They're called the eternal wanderers at times because they wander around weaving the fabric of reality into being. And there's sattva guna, which is the elevating qualities that bring us to a, a higher experience. There's tamaguna, which is the darkening qualities that have inertia and are drawing us away from our true heritage. And in between is rajaguna, and that's activating. And it's activating depending on which direction it's going. If it's moving towards inertia and losing that activating quality, it's a negative part of the experience we have. If that activating quality is moving towards upliftment, then it's positive and can be used that way. So the thought from our perspective being humans, uh, that we can easily feel that the sapaguna, remember that's the uplifting outward manifestation, is the goal in life. But that sapaguna is still in duality. That is not the goal of life. And this is where we get tripped up at times because we endeavor sometimes to make life good. That we endeavor to make things work out. We endeavor, endeavor basically to live a life that is good. We're good to other people, we're good to ourselves, and goodness is where we're orienting what we're doing. And that's very, very good, <laughs> but not enough. We're here to go beyond the pulls and pushes of duality. We're here to go beyond even the desire to have goodness. Now, this is always something that has to be explained a little bit because it's subtle. It's always important in our endeavors, in our attitudes, in our approach, to go towards greater goodness. But what we can do is actually have the experience of the purity of something beyond goodness, and that's the purity of the light, the joy, the divine love of the divine. That is our, the promise been, has been given to us, that we're made in the image of God, 
And we can kind of push that aside because we feel, I'm not even close to being better than what I see in the mirror at times. And it seems such a distance between saying, really? I'm one with God? But that's just the quirkiness of duality that can play around with you and make you feel that you're not worthy. But the quirkiness doesn't have to control what's going on. If we endeavor to just move where we want to be, how we want to be, what our experiences are, we have that choice. You know, a few months before I turned 20, I went on an adventure. I decided to travel through Europe. And I'd been meditating for about a year and a half in a tradition of meditation that's not the one that we have from Yogananda. But nevertheless, it was very, um, very important to me. I could really feel the experience of the benefits of meditation. And I went on this journey, and it was for the better part of a year that I traveled primarily alone. I set off alone and came back alone. Um, and the book that I took with me to read was The Autobiography of a Yogi. I also brought The Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe. Um, and so they were both very important books for me. Um, but what was interesting, and I, I couldn't have said this at the time, but uh, retroactively, I felt that really the trip became a pilgrimage. And I probably couldn't have told you what a pilgrimage was during that journey. But indeed what happened was that as I opened up more and more, the reference point for everything that happened on the trip was my daily meditations. So, you know, whether it was in the cathedrals, the basilicas of Europe, which there are many, or whether it was on, in nature on sandy, beautiful beaches, or in the forests, or in a large dormitory at the youth hostel with hundreds of people, I meditated. I mean, in those youth hostels, when they're that big, it's, it's quite intense just getting people to go to bed. Um, but I, in the mornings, I would get up really quite early and meditate on my bed before everyone else awoke. Just because I knew that if I could set in motion that direct experience, not a vicarious experience, and the word vicarious means in association with, that wasn't enough. I wanted my direct experience. I wanted to be there so that the day wasn't just um, a collection of activities. They were all filtered through that spiritual touch of meditation. And what was interesting in doing that is that I drew the company of other meditators. It's not like I had a sign that says, I am a meditator. Um, I did have a Canadian flag on my pack at that time, so people knew I was a Canadian, which I was at that time, but I didn't have beside it, meditator. And yet, over and over again, through different circumstances, different situations, different places, different activities, other meditators would gravitate towards me, or I would gravitate towards them. And it happened enough time that it was obvious you couldn't say, well, that's a coincidence. Yeah, sure, that happened. 
and this time, and this time, and this time, and this time. No, it kept happening. And I remember one time when I was in a dormitory youth hostel uh, experience, and this was in Brussels in Belgium, that, uh, and there were probably a couple hundred people in this huge room, that uh, these three people came and said, oh, we noticed you meditate. And I, I, you know, I kind of played it softly because who knows what that means to somebody. I said, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and they said, yeah, we just started meditating a few months ago. And uh, we were wondering if maybe we could join together and meditate every once in a while. And then I found out that they were going to purchase a Volkswagen van instead of doing railway, or in my case, hitchhiking, um, to transport themselves around Europe for the rest of their trip. And they invited me into it. Because they were meditators, I thought I had a pretty good deal here. Well, they kind of meditated. Uh, they enjoyed being horizontal a whole lot more than sitting up to meditate. But, but we got on well. And, um, and then we would attract other people that were meditators. And then part of my trip was not only in Europe, but I was going to Israel. And uh, I was there for Passover and Easter. So I was there for a very sacred time. And, but what was interesting was that uh, a friend of mine and some of her friends had uh, gone down into near the Gulf of Elat. Now, this was in 1975, and Israel actually had taken over the Sinai Desert, including this area where I was going. And, you know, obviously a, a decade later, they, or five years later from when I was there, they gave it back to Egypt. But a lot of young people were congregating there, spiritually focused. And it ended up, we had this sort of a, a loose ashram setting in the desert. And it was there that I first got to read metaphysical meditations. And it was there that I first heard a chant of Yogananda's. It was the second chant we just played. Listen, listen, listen to my heart's song. And I was just, what is that? When I heard it. Because most of the songs, we'd gather in the evening and people had guitars and people would share songs. And uh, remember, this is 1975. So it was a lot of Cat Stevens, Donovan, uh, those kind of songs. And some people don't know who those people are. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, but nevertheless, quasi-spiritual songs. And, uh, but then somebody played, listen, listen, listen. And it was a feeling inside that this connection was there. It wasn't like, wow. It was more like, ah, I, I feel this connection. And then I asked, well, what, 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 what is that song? And they said, the people playing it, it was from Yogananda. And they asked me, do you know about Yogananda's teachings? And I said, yes. I haven't delved into them directly, but I've read the autobiography of Yogi. And so every night we would chant that chant. And what I felt was, because this is towards the end of my, my trip, which again was nine or ten months long, that I knew there was something that my heart was needing to explore. That it wasn't just meditation. 
there was something more. And piece by piece, being in settings where there was devotion, like as, as I said, um, sometimes in a large cathedral or basilica, it doesn't always transpire that you feel devotion, but I could feel an inkling. I could feel something there. And then in the desert, uh, I mean, the desert alone, if you've been to like Palm Springs or down in Southern California or other desert areas, there's a remarkable environment if you're receptive to feeling something that your senses would never feel. Something deeper connecting you to that, that consciousness that's there. And in the desert in the Middle East, I could feel with the chanting and other elements coming together that was really the exploration that I was already on. And it was just serving that reality that I knew had to be there. It had to be there. It wasn't just that my affirmation was going to make it happen. I knew that I needed to be there with my self-offering in a much more real and deep way. Not in a fanatical way, not in an obsessive way, very grounded and real. But I could sense this is where I needed to go. And when I got home from that trip, when I got home to Canada, I connected with some, with some of the friends that had started with the meditation process I did. And, uh, and I asked, I said, so what about devotion? And the one friend said, yes, it's important, but you likely won't find it here. And I was like, really? You said that? Um, and so that's when I explored, well, I bought a hardcover cover copy of the autobiography because it was so precious to me. And I would just read it and read it and read it many times through. Um, but I still didn't have any connection. It was like I had blinders or I was in a bubble. I never knew there was an organization you could relate to. It was really odd. It was like I was in a vacuum of tuning into I could go somewhere with this. And then, just as I thought, oh, I've got to make sense of this, where can I go? And then I found out about Ananda. And it was a little classified ad in a yoga magazine. And I wrote away and Prakash answered. And so I had this um, by letter, remember what letters are? Um, <laughs> that uh, communication with Prakash. And he, he really was, along with Swami Kriyananda, and of course Master and our Gurus, probably one of the most significant connections I had to bring me on the spiritual path. It was, um, thank you, Prakash. Because he, he gave me the support that I needed to make sure that teachings were grounded and not just um, wistful yearning in a romantic way, but something powerfully uh, that I was integrating. And so he, um, he kind of walked me through how to make that happen in my time at the apprenticeship program here at Ananda. And it was a time where there were interesting struggles and challenges uh, where the entrance of Ananda is now, which wasn't the entrance of Ananda back in 1978, 
that um, it was just a small driveway and there was a farmhouse there with a converted garage right beside it that we used for meditation and programs classes. And when I arrived on a hot, hot summer day at the end of July in 1978, it was in the afternoon, late afternoon, at that corner, which is on the entrance, there was a grassy lawn with a white fence around it. And there were probably 50 or 60 people doing energization, right at Tyler Foot Road. And when I stepped on the property, I had a ride up to that point. I, I felt deep within, this is my spiritual home. Whether it would be my physical home, that was up for grabs. Um, but I knew with the deepest experience that I could have, this is my spiritual home. And then where we put our tents, because everyone was in camping tents, um, a lot of us were over where the guest services building is and where Serenity House and Harmony House. Those were all the campground area, as well as here. People put up their camping tents right where we're standing. And uh, we had to walk up and down that hill. And when it rained, it was, you slid up and down that hill. <laughs> but just after a few days of being here, I had this very, very interesting experience uh, during my sleep. So I was in my little tent and, um, and I could feel without waking this intense negative force that it was like it was trying to draw my soul out of me. It was very intense. And because I'd read the autobiography a number of times, I immediately tuned into Yogananda, the last mile photograph, uh, which to me has always been as much an experience as it is a visual image. And slowly this, this force, this negative force receded and it exhausted me going through that and I fell asleep right away. And I honestly kind of forgot about it when I woke up in the morning, even though it was really, really intense. But I thought after a, an hour or two, I, th I remembered, oh, you know, Om Guru, Om Guru. But the very next night, the same negative force came to me. But what happened in this night, I woke up laughing with Master in my heart. It wasn't that I even imagined him or visualized him or focused on him. It was like he was there. And, but I woke up laughing. Isn't that interesting? Um, that the joy of being this experience, that this force had no ability to touch me again. And so I've always used, and it's the mantra that Swami Kriyananda has encouraged us to use, Om Guru. So from pretty much way back then, I've gone to sleep after doing a number of other spiritual things, just resting my head on the pillow with Om Guru, Om Guru, Om Guru. And then to our uh, great benefit, Swami Kriyananda in the early 1980s put a melody to what was then Om Kali, Kali is Divine Mother. But he also added chanting Om Guru. So my japa in a sense, my repetition of God's presence is either chanting Om Guru, and the melody is simple, 
offer myself into these tools, so that that devotion became a reality. It became an experience rather than I'm doing devotional things. That continued to happen. That continues to happen for all of us, that we have expressions of devotion. But we can move in, even at the beginning of our journey, to feel devotion, to experience devotion. Because that's the opening of our hearts with feeling that isn't emotional, feeling that's uplifted. It's aspiring to be brought to our home again in God. And so reach one of us, that's the gift that we've been given. So whether out of a thousand seekers, one seeks me and out of how many truth seekers, one perhaps knows me directly, each one of us, as it says at the end of the reading, can be that person that has that experience. That is the invitation, that is the promise from the masters. As Yogananda said, that each one of us should aspire to be liberated while living. And this is called being a jivan mukta. That is possible. And don't put the expectation it has to happen. Have the self-offering that it is my birthright. It is where my home is. And whether it happens in this lifetime, That doesn't really matter that much. It's more that we continue the journey to being open with self-offering, with that connectedness, and with the depth of our love of God and Guru. Let's take a moment to meditate. Life is beautiful, life is gay When I give myself away When I live to please Thee, Lord, dancing in Thy reign. Let me see Thee everywhere, hear Thy melodies in the air. Let me feel Thy strength in me, give me joy to share. Life is beautiful, life is gay, when I give myself away. When I live to please Thee, Lord, dancing in Thy reign. Let me see Thee everywhere, hear Thy melodies in the air. Let me feel Thy strength in me, give me joy to share. Let me feel Thy strength in me, give me joy to share. Worship thee, praise of life that 